The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Uh, today we're going to continue um, with the third of a four-week series uh, that we've been doing on the Eightfold Path. And um, the Eightfold Path is made up of like three different sections. Uh, the first section, uh, which we covered the first couple of weeks, is wisdom, which includes a, a right view and right intention. And this week, we're going to cover virtue, or sila. And uh, that's right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And then the next week, we'll cover the last part of the path, which is the actual training of the mind, or samadhi, or concentration. And that's uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and uh, right concentration. So um, today we'll focus on sila, which um, virtue or ethics. It um, comes from the word bed. It's like the foundation, the bed from which uh, our whole spiritual life is supposed to be supported in. Um, Virtue is the way we live our lives. In every way that we live our lives, it's... uh, it's an expression of what, how we understand life. Um, it includes everything we do and everything we say. Um, right action is, uh, includes the five precepts. And the five precepts are really the heart of the, of the practice of sila. They are... Um, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Right speech is part of the five precepts, but the Buddha thought it was so important that uh, he gave it a step of its own. Because speech has so much the potential to either cause healing or cause harm. Um, And that view is actually shared by a lot of other religious thought. Uh, In Judaism, there's a proverb um, that says, uh, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Um, The precepts uh, are guidelines of ethical behavior, but they're not based on ideas of good and bad. Um, They're not rules that you're supposed to keep because those are the rules. They're just an observation that some things you do lead to suffering and some things you do lead to happiness. And... um, Of course, we want to do the things that lead to happiness. Um, So they're not commandments. Uh, They're they're considered a training precept. And the really nice thing about when you train is that uh, if you're learning to play the piano, for instance, you know, you you learn by failing. In fact, any skill you learn, you learn by failing. Uh, You hit the wrong note many times before you get it, you know, you get the timing off and eventually you get it right. And uh, that's how we train with the precepts. And just like when you're playing the piano, it doesn't help if every time you make a mistake, uh, you criticize yourself for making a mistake because that's the process of learning. Nobody learns anything without failing over and over and over again. 
And so the same thing with the precepts is we need to hold them with, with that attitude. So if we're really committed to right speech and we just found that we just, whoops, I just spent the last 10 minutes gossiping about someone, you know, that yes, we want to stop doing that. Yes, we want to learn from what we've done. But we hold that with, without adding any more suffering to ourselves. The purpose of the precepts is to be happy. If we criticize ourselves and judge ourselves harshly when we break them, then we're actually, um, you know, not following the precepts and that judgment. So um, we hold this with, with, a, with a kindness towards ourselves. Um, one of the things that living according to the precepts is actually um, what comes naturally when we're really connected with the truth of suffering and that by clinging to things and craving, we cause ourselves suffering. So when we're really connected with that truth, we naturally live by the precepts because we don't want to cause ourselves or others any harm. Um, The precepts are like signposts of our intentions. They're really meant to protect us. They say, look here where we might um, not notice. Such as uh, if we find ourselves in the middle of a heated argument. Um, you know, if we want to remember that we want to keep our speech kind. Oh yeah, that's, we, do, we want to have kind speech. That, that might be enough to stop ourselves from escalating. And, uh, you know, and eventually we might really reconnect with the fact that, oh, yeah, I'm clinging to this idea and that's causing me a lot of pain and I don't need to do this. But uh, having the precept kind of handy in our consciousness, you know, oh, yeah, I don't want to yell at anybody. Okay, that's, you know, that's not right speech, harsh speech. So, so that's like right there and it's helpful to get us back into, in touch with, you know, wanting to have communication and kindness in our relationships. Um, as training rules, the precepts are understood at, as rules of restraint. We agree to hold back on certain impulses. Instead of following our impulse to swat a fly, uh, we'd hold back and bring mindfulness to the discomfort that we are reacting to. You know, we don't like that sound. Um, you know, we're, it's, it's annoying. It's, uh, you know, we're concerned about it polluting our food. Um, but because we, we've uh, agreed to a precept that we're, just, we're not going to kill life, um, then that's there to really bring that awareness uh, to us. The restri- these restraints are mirrors to stop and study ourselves, to understand our reactions and motivations, and to reflect on the consequences of our actions. The precepts, um, the main imperative is to do no harm and to act out of compassion. They should not be held rigidly. Uh, We should always keep in mind non-harming. The moment that we hold to them rigidly, like this is the right way to be, um, then we start becoming narrow-minded and we start looking at other people. If we hold that, if we take the precept not to kill life, um, for instance, uh, some people choose to be vegetarian. And other people who follow the same precept choose not to. 
Um, and it can be very easy for somebody to say, well, I'm holding it the right way. You know, same thing, uh, you know, I'm going to go through the precepts in order, but, but the precept, for instance, to um, not intoxicate ourselves, to cloud our minds. Uh, some people are, are get very angry when they hear that some Buddhists are, are drinking wine with their dinner. Um, so, you know, it can create a certain rigidity when we hold these as commandments, as rules, as things that everybody should follow. The precepts are really about purifying our own minds and heart. Living with the precepts is an act of generosity to everyone around us. I mean, really think about that. Think about what a gift it is to everyone uh, who you meet to know that you will not cause them any harm. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about being in a group like this, in a sangha where people are really committed to these principles, is that everybody here really has that intention to not cause each other harm. One of the things that's helpful to do sometimes is to actually contemplate on uh, the consequences of unskillful action. Um, Consequences can range from like inner consequences, such as a mind that's disturbed with worry and regret, to gross consequences, such as harming your relationships, going to jail. Um, A brief pleasure of an unskillful action can lead very lasting consequences, such as somebody can, you know, can get drunk, you know, and then go driving. You know, they could cause an accident. They could uh, hurt themselves or hurt someone else. It can lead to a lifetime of, of suffering um, or unskillful sexual encounter. Just that one moment of, of following an impulse, not restraining ourselves without enough consciousness and mindfulness. Just even a small negative outburst can create a lifetime enemy. We can easily give up our peace of mind to be right. We can argue in ways that ruin relationships just for the brief satisfaction of getting our way. So I'd like to talk about the specific precepts. in a month, uh, Andrea Fell is going to be here, and she's going to be doing a series on um, on the five precepts, and she's going to do each one and spend uh, the whole sitting on it, uh, the whole talk on it. So she will be going into more depth, so I will be kind of touching them lightly. Um, so the precepts, just, uh, just to name them, are not killing, um, not, not taking, not taking what's not given, not stealing, uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from unwise speech, and not using intoxicants that cloud the mind. I like to think of the precepts both from the side of what we refrain from and from the side of what we're cultivating. So the first precept, which is refrain from killing, the flip side, the, the cultivation side, is to act with reverence to all forms of life. And that kind of um, 
really works for me because, you know, often you go, oh, yeah, not killing. Well, I don't kill anybody, you know. <laughs> so that's not relevant. But, but the truth of it is, uh, you know, there's, uh, I have encounters with things like termites and, and um, other little critters in my life. And, um, and so how do, I, how, how do I live with them? Um, and then there's a lot of big issues. You know, maybe we don't kill people. But um, how do we relate to uh, the military? How do we relate to supporting uh, companies that make weapons? Um, uh, you know, should, would we kill in self-defense? You know, there's some monks who um, take a vow and they will not kill in self-defense. They will allow themselves to be killed. Um, some people hold this so dearly um, that they wouldn't defend their families. Uh, the Quakers, um, their, their tenet um, is so strong that they, they will not go into military service. I recently, and again, this is an area that can create a lot of judgment. It's very interesting because I was reading one of the Buddhist journals um, uh, I don't remember, uh, several months ago, and they did a whole issue on um, focused on the military, Buddhism in the military. And uh, what was interesting was the letters afterwards. There was some kind of little bit angry, little bit of angry letters about how could they say they're Buddhists, they're in the military, you know, it's against the rules, you know. And um, But there's one story that really moved me. Uh, it was a young man who had been... Um, uh, he, he'd been practicing for a while, and he was sent to um, Abu Ghraib. Uh, that's in um, Iraq, where they had that recent scandal uh, of some really uh, major inhumanities. And he was sent there right when those things, when the scandal became known, you know. And um, and he was asked. Um, um, how did his Buddhist training affect him? And I'll just read you what he said. Mindfulness, when applied to anything, makes it better. Even in terrible situations, when you think it might feel better to not know or feel what's going on, what you actually find when you delve into these experiences is that there's wisdom there. I was able to tell myself that if this must happen, at least I can learn from it. If these people are suffering, at least I can recognize it and provide some dignity. And I think this allowed me to carry myself in such a way that I was approachable. It allowed me to be the person for them that they needed to see. Someone who had a heart and compassionate eyes. I think in an environment that's so dehumanizing and insulting to who they are as people, just to have that one person who cared was important. And I wasn't the only decent human being there, but I really found that my practice helped me to be who I needed to be. So, um, what a great place to bring a little bit of peace, you know, in the military. I think I read recently that there, um, the first Dharma talk at some army center, you know, was given recently. So 
So contemplating the precept um, in relation to the animal and insect world uh, raises a lot of questions. You know, do we kill the termites that are eating our homes? Um, Do we use insecticides? Do we eat meat or fish? Do we kill mosquitoes? Uh, How about the slugs in our garden? Uh, A Buddhist physician uh, who comes here sometimes, um, uh, you know, in her personal life, she chose not to kill insects. So if there's, you know, a mosquito on her, I don't think she would kill it. Uh, But she went to practice in um, Asia, you know, uh, her medical practice in Asia. And, um, you know, the program they were doing was, you know, uh, dealing, I think it was dengue fever and, you know, it was a mosquito eradication program. You know, so that's the question, you know, do you, do you break the precept and kill all the mosquitoes, you know, for the human life, you know. And, um, uh, you know, I know what my choice would be. You know, my choice would be yes. You know, we, we, will, we do eradicate the mosquitoes. Um, but the Pawak Monastery, for instance, in Burma, um, they had bed bugs, and they had bed bugs in all the beds, in all the zabutans. You know, those are the little cushions you sit on. They were everywhere in the meditation hall. They had thousands of monks there, and uh, they were having the monks take them out one by one. <laughs> and I don't know if you can guess how successful that was. Um, so those are choices we, we all make, you know, and again, it's not, you know, it, I think it's very important to, again, remember that this is not about an absolute right and an absolute wrong, uh, but it's really finding the way for us to live in a way that has integrity with what, with, with what we see uh, in our own hearts. Um, the Dalai Lama, you know, he said um, he really wanted to be a vegetarian. But his physician told him that he had to eat meat for his health. So he chose to be vegetarian every other day. So, um, and if we do decide to kill termites or to kill mosquitoes, uh, what's the quality of our hearts when we make that decision? Are we thinking of the termites with disgust, with hatred? Or are we... You know, acknowledging that they're human beings wanting to survive just like we are, and yet we're making this choice. So do we do this with a sense of respect? Like the Native Americans who uh, hunted, you know, they hunted. To them, when they killed the animal, it was a sacred act of great utmost respect. Nothing was wasted. And... um, and that's a really uh, important part of the equation here. So the second precept. Um, to refrain from stealing um, and f- from taking what's not given. This includes both gross stealing and more subtle forms. Many people wouldn't think, you know, they would never consider stealing from another person, but wouldn't think twice of cheating on taxes or um, downloading music off the internet that's pirated music. Um, The positive counterpart to abstaining from stealing is honesty, which implies respect for the belongings of others uh, and for the right to use their belongings as they wish. 
For instance, um, you know, reading somebody's mail without asking them. Um, you know, it's not stealing, but it's, it's, it is in a certain way. Um, not trashing the rental car just because it's not your car. Um, do we pay attention to people's time? Uh, being late, keeping people waiting. You know, that's taking what's not given. We can even extend it to dealing with our natural resources. Are we taking the resources from future generations? Because we want to have, have it all now. Uh, there's so many places to go with that precept, you know, but um, that I'm going to—it's I'm restraining myself. <laughs> so the third precept, and that's refraining from sexual misconduct. In Buddhism, there's no such thing as sin. Sex is considered uh, a very, you know, healthy, normal part of humanity. But sexual energy is considered a very powerful force. It's really why we're here, why we're alive, why there's uh, over six billion people on this planet. Um, we can enjoy great happiness and intimacy, or we can cause tremendous suffering for ourselves and others with sex, with sexual energies. The Buddha really had very limited guidelines about how to restrain our sexual conduct. Basically, it was about who we partner with, um, that our partner should be appropriate. Uh, we shouldn't have sex with uh, relatives, uh, with people who are married or engaged to other people, uh, with children, with animals. We shouldn't force anybody to have sex. So very, very basic restraint of um, um, that didn't go deeply into um, any any more specifics. Uh, the monks, of course, understood that they, they uh, took on a vow of celibacy and they would keep that vow until, um, you know, as long as they were still monks. Um, the lay people were supposed to, uh, one of the things that lay people, if, if um, you marry or you enter a monogamous relationship, you're supposed to stick to that because you've given your word. Uh, but it's not that, that if you haven't, uh, the, there was nothing said about, well, you know, maybe this month I have sex with this person, that month with that person. It's really about um, honesty and integrity in those relationships. There is no overarching rule of how to behave. Um, the imperative of the precepts is to do no harm. Um, any feelings of guilt about our sexuality are actually going against the precepts. Uh, because guilt, guilt causes us harm. Guilt is something we do that harms ourselves. Um, so sexual activity is either viewed as either helpful for long-term happiness or harmful towards our happiness. Honesty and communication go a long way to not breaking this precept. The primary question is, am I causing harm to myself or another? So, 
The fourth precept, or wise speech, is to refrain from false speech, which is lying, malicious or divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle speech. Uh, the flip side is, the positive side is, is, is it true? Is what you say is true? Is it kind? Does it harm anyone? Is it useful? And is it the right time to say it to someone? Um, <clears throat> lying not only has great social implications, but deep personal ones. Um, we have various motivations for lying, and they deeply condition us. Whenever we lie, we're supporting those parts of ourselves that motivated us to, to lie. And we usually either lie out of greed out of wanting something, such as to gain advantage. Um, you know, we want wealth. You know, we want position, respect. We want to impress someone. We want pleasure. So we lie to get something, something we want. Or we might lie to hurt or damage uh, another. Um, or we may lie out of fear. You know, we're afraid we're going to, somebody's going to find out that... Um, you know, we did something wrong, you know. So, um, so those are like some of the various motivations. Whenever we lie, let's say, um, you know, let's take a minor habit of lying to impress people. Um, you know, you, you pretend that, you know, sometimes people have a habit of, of um, saying they did something better than they really did, you know. And, and every time, they, something that they, you know. And that habit creates uh, a very deep disturbance within a person. You know, there's a way that you can't just relax because you know you're lying. You know, and so it creates a disconnect between who you're talking to and uh, a sense of, um, you know, disturbance within ourselves because you really can't really feel good about yourself when you're, when you're, you know, trying to impress people. You know, it may seem that way for a moment, but really inside, you know, when that's what's driving you, you know, you're just not at peace. You're not relaxed. Um, another area of, of speech, of, of this part of speech, is integrity. And that keeping a word is part of telling the truth. Sometimes people who are very diligent about not lying have no problem with being chronically late. Or, um, you know, chronically saying things like, oh, okay, I'll call you tomorrow and not calling. And those seem like harmless little things, but they actually really um, uh, affect how much we trust ourselves. Because if we say we're going to do something and we don't do it, we don't believe ourselves. So the more we, are, we don't have integrity with the things we say we're going to do, the less we trust ourselves. And, of course, the less other people can trust us. I mean, it's, not, it's okay if we forget. I mean, you know, and if we're late on occasion. I'm really talking about when something becomes a habit. Um, one thing that took me a long time to really get is, um, uh, do we admit the truth when we don't know the answer? You know, um, that's an area where I, you know, um, uh, I used to practice as a chiropractor and, um, and, you know, patients would ask me questions. Most of the time I knew, you know, and it was the hardest thing for me to say when something came up, oh, I don't know. 
you know, and uh, some people don't have that problem. We, we all have our different areas where, um, where we get stuck. That was one of mine. Um, but are there gray areas? For instance, uh, in wartime, you know, people lie to save other people's lives. Um, that sounds like a really uh, wonderful thing to do to me. Uh, I know that some people would hold to that. No, I will not. I would not lie. You know, I would, you know, but again, that's something that we each have to decide. Uh, another place is what are called white lies. Um, you know, somebody says, um, um, you know, um, I just did this painting. Isn't, what do you think? You know, and you absolutely hate it. You know, um, you know, but, you know, how honest are you? You know, so, so how do you deal with that with integrity? You know, you don't want to rave about it and say, oh, that's the best thing I've ever seen. But maybe you can find something in that painting that you appreciate. There's got to be something. It's like, I, I, I really like that, that purple color in the corner there, but that's a really nice touch. <laughs> um, so, um, what lies, you know? Um, I remember somebody asked um, a friend of mine, um, do you like me? I mean, that's really putting someone on the spot. And, um, you know, and that was, and he's like this real, um, just a little bit too honest, you know. And he said, um, um, well, you know, I like you when you're real. <laughs> and, you know, it would just cause just tremendous amount of pain. And um, and it didn't. It wasn't like something that created good communication, you know. But that's what can happen when we just stick to honesty. Is, or I'm just an honest person, you know. Uh, everything uh, we think doesn't have to be said. Um, another thing that we often do with speech is exaggeration. And it's something that um, I've watched myself a lot because I, t- I tend to exaggerate. Um, uh, you know, we went to the best restaurant, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, it's really minor and insignificant in some ways. But where does that come from? Uh, what, what actually causes that? There's actually a subtle level um, of uh, when we do that of trying to impress. It's like, I'm the person who's turning you on to this great restaurant. You know, I'm the one who told you about it. You know, that kind of quality can be in there. Uh, or, or different qualities when we exaggerate. Um, so sometimes exaggerating is just fun. You know, so I'm not being nitpicky, but I'm really just bringing this up so we can examine the areas, the habits we have in our speech. And if something resonates in your habits, you know, you might want to just take a little closer look. Um, the tone of voice and the body language um, are just as much speech as, uh, you know, as anything you might say. And um, crossing your arms, you know, raising an eyebrow, uh, rolling your eyes, you know, that's, that's a lot of speech there. Um, the same words with a different intention can be skillful or unskillful. Um, for instance, you can say to somebody um, very compassionately and caring, you look tired. Or you can say to somebody very kind of judgmentally and disapprovingly, you look tired. 
you know. So, so there's, you know, the same words, you know. Um, uh, I've heard a lot of people say, I, that's, I just said da-da-da-da, you know, you know, they just said something, but really it was the way they said it that, that brought forth the intent, not the words themselves. The other place in, in this aspect of speech is the written word. Uh, the written word has had incredible power. It can break lives, create enemies, start wars. It can also give wisdom. I mean, how many of you have read amazing books that have just um, inspired you? Um, it can create peace. It can heal. Due to technology, we have such an incredibly multiplying amazing amount of writing and the ability of writing to reach the masses. Um, so it's an area to really pay attention to. And the one little special area that I think requires a little extra consideration is, is what I call write email. And um, email, you know, it, it took us a while to get a hang of email isn't writing a letter. Okay, so because we get so much email, we couldn't write letters. So it's become a whole different way of communicating. And so some of us get a lot of emails. Sometimes I have a hundred emails sitting in my mailbox every day that I have to go through. And so um, I've seen the effect of a rushed email getting a really horrible communication, unmeant communication across more than once. Um, a friend of mine absolutely almost destroyed a relationship over a misunderstanding. He had um, he was going hiking at desolation, and uh, which is desolation wilderness. And so you know he just wrote back, yeah, you know I'm I'm going to desolation this weekend. So the friend who, had, who was from out of state and never heard of desolation absolutely took it to mean that he was kind of you know, in a depressed state. And so it just created this major misunderstanding back and forth that created a lot of anger before they figured out that there was something going on there. He, in fact, they almost didn't get to that last point of, of healing. Um, so one of the things that... Um, um, at, at the end of this uh, recent retreat I just did, you know, I was very motivated. I spent a lot of time at my, at my computer... And I was very motivated to to really wake up at my computer, you know, and what I do there. And one of the things that uh, I, I started doing is that every time that I write an email, to just take a moment and actually think of the person at the other end and to smile, you know, so that I'm I'm actually writing the email with just a little bit of feeling of an open heart when I write it. And that's been really helpful to me to to stay present and actually just really uh, makes my whole process so much more enjoyable. So the next um, the next section of speech, I better um, move a little quicker here. <laughs> okay, is uh, malicious or divisive speech. Um, I really. I met someone recently that um, I had heard a lot about and what I had heard was really unflattering and um, it, it was so difficult for me to see this person newly. Uh, I just kept hearing these things that I'd been told about this person 
And I had to work really hard to just set that down, set that down, set that down, so I could really keep my heart open and, and really see this person for who they were. And, and really, when it came to getting to know them, they were not who I had thought they were from what I had heard. Because often when people gossip or say things about someone, it's just a very narrow part of who that person is. Um, so when we talk about someone, the guideline that I use is the person being presented with dignity. Um, so if we have to talk about someone, to me that's the quality that's really important. Uh, the motivation for any malicious or divisive speech is either anger or hatred. Sometimes people disclose the confidence pretending it's for that person's own good. There's a lot of kind of slightly twisted motivation sometimes with divisive or malicious speech uh, where we pretend we're not being malicious or divisive. Um, most forms of gossip are are definitely forms that don't respect the person's dignity. So the question is, you know, um, let's say you have a piece of, I don't know how many of you have uh, have a tendency to gossip, but sometimes gossip, we talk about, oh, that's a juicy piece of gossip, you know, and that juiciness, that's, that's the craving for something juicy, that's craving. And how does that desire to say that little piece of, ju- of juicy gossip feel inside? It's a really rich spot to, at that moment, you, you really want to say it, to restrain yourself and experience that craving to say what you're going to say. And if that's not your area, it might be kind of an angry outburst, kind of a judgmental type of uh, reactivity. So in that moment, if you restrain yourself, really look at Ah, you really had that wanting. It's a, you know, I've paid attention to that. It's very uncomfortable, you know, that wanting to do that. Uh, but it's really worth going through it, and you know, and it passes, and it starts breaking that na- that habit of of wanting to do that all the time. Suzuki Roshi said, um, he was asked, "What do you think of all these American students? You're all enlightened until you open your mouth." <laughs> Um, so harsh speech is the next section and that includes unkind and abusive speech Um, the key with harsh speech is intention to cause the hearer pain it's rooted in hatred or anger and it can be abusive speech uh, an angry tone Uh, it can be putting down on a person but the area that's often missed is sarcasm uh, a lot of people think sarcasm is funny. But, you know, the actual root of the word means uh, ripping of the flesh. Sarcos flesh, asm, you know, ripping of the flesh. So a lot of, like, this biting type of humor, um, you know, is not really funny. It can be very hurtful. Uh, cussing. Uh, for some people, all cussing is wrong speech. But culturally, for some people, cussing is just the way they've grown up. That's what's around them. Um, so I think it's, uh, again, it's important to not be judgmental about it, but really look at your, yourself. Um, for instance, if you were uh, hammering and you hit your finger, you know, do you cuss? Either at yourself, at the tool, 
at the situation? Are you adding more anger into the situation? Are you causing more pain by the way you respond? Um, I think the main thing um, to contemplate here for, you know, when we have conflict, conflict can easily escalate to anger and harsh speech. And um, what I keep in mind is can I disagree with kindness? You know, and just kind of keeping that as, as a, a, a running support for myself. Um, you know, when I get into disagreement, which happens regularly (laughs) Um, you know can I be there you know really hold a very different point of view and know that we may not have a meeting of the minds and to hold that with kindness so um, the the fourth part of right speech is uh, refraining from idle chatter and idle chatter is speech that lacks purpose or depth it usually communicates nothing of value and it stirs up uh, just a lot of useless thinking in our own minds and in the minds of others. But what's really important here is our intention. Um, small talk, which can be about nothing, you know, really very uh, trivial talk, can actually be a very useful thing to do uh, for breaking the ice. You know, with, with strangers or people who aren't, aren't comfortable. Um, so, if your intention is to have connection, it doesn't really matter what you say. I don't know if you, any of you have sat at the bedside of somebody whose um, whose mind is beginning to go. You know, they're they're ill and they're you know either they're they have dementia, Alzheimer's, but they're or they're just very ill and they're just not quite there. It doesn't matter what you say, what you talk about. You're not really going to have a conversation there. But, but just any little words, any soothing, anything, uh, it's really the connection you make with that person that's important, not the words that are being said. So sometimes very trivial-sounding words can be a deep connection also. Um, the instructions for lay people are um, affectionate small talk with friends and family polite conversation with acquaintances, and talk in connection with their line of work, but mindful not to let the conversation strain to topics that are conducive to thoughts rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, Like there are certain conversations that are very easily, very quickly, um, get into um, nothing useful. Sometimes people get into that with politics, where it just gets into, you know, it's not really discussing issues, but it's just kind of, um, you know, it's time to put down um, the, lo- the, the person in power currently. Um, so uh, one of my favorite quotes by Thich Nhat Hanh is, um, words can travel across thousands of miles. They're intended to build up understanding and love. Each word should be a jewel, a beautiful tapestry. Then, uh, moving on to the fifth precept, uh, which is to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind. Um, modern interpretations uh, really vary, 
Um, again, monks, of course, don't, you know, the Theravada monks never drank anything um, and they didn't take any drugs of any kind. Uh, but in the modern world, there's quite a few teachers who will drink, uh, drink a glass of wine with their meals or, um, you know, take, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, sometimes like peyote has been used in, um, in sacred ceremonies. Uh, Trappist monks uh, use wine as a, as a sacrament. So there's, uh, those aren't really things that intoxicate and cloud the mind. They're used for awakening. So there's a way of holding that, that where that might be a possibility. Um, even though a lot of, uh, a lot of Buddhists will actually just, you know, well, no, I've taken a vow not to do those things. But definitely when we overindulge in those things, uh, you know, the reason it's not, again, it's not morally wrong, but when you're drunk, you're definitely not going to be able to hold the precepts. The tendency when you're, you know, when you're drunk, you say things you don't, you're sorry about later, you do things you're sorry about later. So it's really about having a clear mind. And some, uh, some people actually interpret intoxicating the mind. Uh, we have a different world now. And, um, you know, people get uh, addicted to the Internet, to television, to uh, compulsive entertainment, to compulsive stimulus um, or mess, instant messaging and, um, you know, or cell phones, you know, where, where you can't be anywhere for alone without your phone, uh, you know, talking to someone. So all those things are things, are, are they... Um, are we getting intoxicated in ways that really cloud the mind because we're continuously grabbing something, 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 you know. Um, so it's something to explore, to see, to look in your own life. Are those, are those your tools or are they your addictions? Because uh, they're wonderful tools. They can be wonderful tools. Um, the precepts really can be summed up to do no harm. Um, but they just make us aware of the specifics so that, um, you know, when we get caught up in our reactivity, it just makes it a little bit easier to wake up. Um, okay. So I'm going to spend a couple of minutes <laughs> talking about right livelihood, which is the uh, fifth step of the path. And, um, you know, livelihood can be defined as the means of support by which one lives. It includes both paid and unpaid work, including volunteering and parenting. Uh, but modern life is a lot more complex than at the time of the Buddha. And since a penny saved is a penny earned, so our investments and our savings are really part of our livelihood. Um, the Buddha said there were five types of work that we should, we should not engage in. Dealing in weapons, in living beings, in meat production and butchering, um, in intoxicants, and dealing in poisons. And all those areas can be a little bit controversial. Uh, for instance, a lot of Buddhists eat meat, um, and they create a demand for it. Um, in, um, in, for instance, Tibetan Buddhists, uh, they will not work, they will not kill an animal, they will not, um, 
uh, butcher an animal. They would not. They would not take a job, you know, where they had to do something like that. But they eat meat, you know. And in fact, one of the monasteries, what they would do is like they would have a wall and they would throw rocks over the wall so they wouldn't know which rock killed the animal. Um, so people have different ways of negotiating around around these issues. Uh, sometimes things get silly like that when uh, you're trying to follow a rule instead of really going by the intent of the uh, of the situation. Um, same thing dealing with intoxicants. You know, um, you know Whole Foods, which is a wonderful place. Uh, you know that sells all this you know, wonderful food, um, they sell wine. You know, um, if you were really a strict Buddhist, you wouldn't work there according to these original rules. So, so um, you know, we hold these in a way that we really want to look at the intent of it. You know, maybe you don't want to be a drug dealer. That might be more, more of a practical type of way of holding this. Um, you know, dealing in weapons. So many of the multinational corporations that that people work for, um, you may think that they're in medicine, but yet they have this one whole section that's doing military stuff. Uh, so it's it's very hard in this world to know, to, to first of all, to work in a way that absolutely does no harm, because everything is so intertwined and interrelated. Um, the important thing is to make sure that you're aligned with what you're doing and not, you know, turning a blind eye to what you're doing. Be really aware of what you're doing in your livelihood. Um, there are many modern careers that the Buddha didn't mention, such as um, actors. You know, actors can cause a lot of harm by the roles they play. An anorexic actress can influence thousands and thousands of young girls. Um, you know, they found that the more smoking there is in the movies, the more smoking there is in society. So actors actually create uh, a, a lot of consequences. Um, what about advertising? Uh, getting people to want what they don't need. Is that right livelihood? Um, you know, the whole ramification of consumerism. Um, so it's again, you know, it's 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 just keeping these things open. You know, it's not necessarily making these uh, judgmental decisions about this, but like keeping the questions alive in our lives. Um, does the work cause us to break any of the precepts? Does the work require us to lie? Uh, for instance, um, I don't know if any of you have been in a position working with someone where they told you to lie. You know, sometimes the secretary is, is told, well, you know, if they call, tell them I'm not here. You know, it's something that happens to work a lot, you know. So um, how does that, you know, feel? Do we have to do that? Um, there's other factors related to the job that can make it difficult for the mind to settle down, such as working a 60-hour week, um, you know, having a toxic employer. But sometimes we have no choice. Uh, but to make the best of a difficult situation. In this valley, you know, most people who live in this valley have a lot more choice than most people on the planet. Uh, most people on the planet really don't have a lot of choice about the jobs, they, the, the work they do. Um, but if you do have the choice, it's really important to recognize what your choices really are. Uh, a friend of mine um, has... Um, he has what are called the golden handcuffs. 
You know, he doesn't have to work, but the job pays so well, and he hates the job. He really hates the job, but he just can't give up that huge paycheck, even though he doesn't really need it. But it's just, you know, that 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 hook is there. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of areas here that that can um, a lot of rich areas here to explore. Um, another idea that can cause a lot of suffering for people in relation to livelihood is really thinking that our livelihood has to be meaningful and important. Um, most people, you know, there's, it's very common in, in recent areas that we're all supposed to live our passion and find this perfect job that is, is really going to uh, be the perfect job for us. And most of the world doesn't, can't even come close to that. Um, it's a little bit of an elitist way of, of looking at life, but it's also a way of, um, you know, some people are very fortunate and they find that. But a lot of people will never find that, and they will just suffer thinking that if they don't find that, they've somehow failed. Um, so the last thing I'm going to say about ri- livelihood is um, Sherry Huber said, how we do anything is how we do everything. And how we work, how we sh- should be no different than how we play in a certain way. Um, there should be no separation between work and play, between family and work. It should be a smooth tapestry of, of an open heart. And we have a way of sometimes, this is work and can't wait till it's over. You know, and, and that's a, such a huge part of our lives, to not wake up and to not be vital and enthused and engaged in regardless of what it is we do. I mean, I've washed dishes, which is kind of an unintellectual type of thing, where I've just been very, very happy washing dishes. So repetitive, kind of what appears like a dull activity, can be very, very rich if we allow ourselves to be mindful and engage in them. Um, And I'd like to end with a, a very short Rumi poem. Um, no better love than love with no object. No more satisfying work than work with no purpose. If you could give up tricks and cleverness, that would be the cleverest trick. Um, so we have about one minute for questions. <laughs> So sorry about going on a little bit. I, I, I did want to go over a little bit too much material for the for the time given. Um, so, but if there are any questions, I'd be happy to stay after. And um, uh, and next week we'll be doing the the last part of the path. So thank you.